According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 6 this morning is our text as we return to our study on the sluggards. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Proverbs 6, 6. Observe her ways and be wise. This is, uh, of course, a secular wisdom, a temporal life wisdom. That's very practical for daily life. An unbeliever could apply this and be blessed. Um, remember, there's different sorts of wisdom. This isn't the spiritual wisdom um, as we understand it. So we've been talking about bios life wisdom and zoe life wisdom and uh, what it is we learn from the insects. All right, before we get started again this morning, let's ask the Father to bless our time together, to set aside distractions, and to um, glorify His Son in all that we study today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for being your children, that we are children of truth. The spirit of truth indwells each one of us. And Father, it is your faithfulness on display this morning to open the eyes of our understanding and to feed us from the truth of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is the second point in the outline. David's second financial admonition is a warning against laziness. Remember, the first admonition was a warning against financial entanglements of others, not uh, becoming surety for your neighbor and misapplying financial um, bonds where they do not apply and uh, all the issues that apply there. Point two then, the second financial admonition is a warning against laziness. And this is verses 6 through 11, beginning with, go to the ant, O sluggard. Sluggards should learn from ants and uh, can learn from ants because the Bible tells us in which way we should, we should learn from ants. Natural revelation has its place, but we know that because of special revelation. And that uh, becomes important as well. We do have a bios life wisdom, and it should be a reflection of Zoe life wisdom. And this is where some people get confused because they have a different bios life wisdom that does not come from the Word of God. It comes from whatever, false religions or human philosophy or secular humanism or whatever. And they have a form of bios life wisdom and it appears to be closely aligned or similar or comparable to our own bios life wisdom and say, well... Um, is there anything wrong with that then? If they're, if they're moral people, if they're good people, well, then they're doing the same stuff we're doing, all right? They're, uh, and, and in financial matters, maybe um, they, they save, they have savings rather than debt. Maybe they have other financial applications. And honestly, they might be doing better than we're doing in some respects uh, because they're actually dealing with their own environment. They're dealing with their own kind. They can be more shrewd than the regenerate in dealing with their own kind and uh, some applications there in any event. Um, for you and I, we need to have both forms of wisdom. And we want to have, obviously, the Zoe life wisdom through the study of the Scriptures, through being transformed into the image of Christ. And then our bios life wisdom can be a reflection of that. Insects cannot teach us Zoe life wisdom, but the Bible does. The Bible also instructs us to observe the principles of bios life wisdom that are manifest in natural revelation. And that's, that's really our controlling authority. The reason why ants can be instructive in, in the principle of laziness is because God's Word tells us to look to the ants and find the instructiveness there for the principles of laziness. All right, We have the biblical authority to identify the, the zoological illustration. Okay, And there's other places in Scripture that do that. There's other animals that are employed in that use as well. Uh, you'll notice uh, it doesn't say, look to the sloth, O, o uh, energetic person. <laughs> okay, It says, look to the ant, O sluggard. And so the Word of God is showing us what the pattern should be. Now, if you decide to go out there and become a sloth imitator and say, well, you know, I was watching the, 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 the Nature Channel and, and these sloths were just kind of laying there and doing not much of anything, and, and that's what I want to imitate. 
<laughs> well, you can imitate a sloth if you like, but you have no biblical sanction to do so. In fact, just the opposite. You see what I'm saying? And so we don't just simply adopt an animal behavior because the animals do it. Just because the animals do it doesn't make it right for us. And uh, don't get me going on some of those other illustrations, okay? Uh, but when the Scripture says this animal is an example or does not even nature teach you a principle, it does so to illustrate what the, the, the Scriptures have already been communicating as a principle, as a, as a point of doctrine. And so the point of doctrine is don't be a slug. And uh, the illustration is look at the ants. There's a, a natural demonstration for you that you can learn from. So, um, I think that these passages are, are useful. First Kings chapter two, chapter three, and chapter four. All of those are Solomon contexts, whereby Solomon had wisdom already, even before his special prayer, and even before the the uh, extra wisdom God had bestowed upon him. He was a wise man to begin with, but he also had wisdom in secular realms. He had wisdom in terms of gardens and trees and and plants and agriculture and all these things. In the book of Daniel, we see that God gave them those. Uh, Hebrew boys, he gave them wisdom in literature, in history, in science, in secular Babylonian fields. And so there is a place for that. And if God uh, has blessed you with a particular wisdom and a particular application, be thankful for that and, and uh, be a good steward of the blessings that God has supplied in, uh, in so many respects. Point C then, in our non-ant perspective, there are no discernible chiefs, officers, or rulers directing the ant's work. And this uh, we take a look at in verse 7. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler. And so we're looking down at a pile of ants and we, uh, we, we, we can't tell the difference, <laughs> right? We're looking down at a pile of ants and to us, that's that's a that's a big pile of ants, okay, and uh, and pile probably isn't the right word, you know. I don't know if they're flocks or herds or or uh, you know whatever the collective noun is for a, a, a colony of ants, but um, in any event, we look at these ants and we can't tell the boy ants from the girl ants or the worker ants or the the queen ants or the the uh, so forth. It's not evident to us. Okay. Now they do have chiefs, officers, or rulers, but we can't tell them apart just by looking at them, right? They're not wearing name tags. <laughs> they don't have the. They're not wearing the uniform uniforms. Okay, with uh, with the rank uh, sewn on the collar. And that's the point. Okay, they can tell amongst themselves because they are following the direction that they were designed to do, but we can't see it. We can't see it at all. And I think that's a good illustration. Because if it's invisible to us, yet they know what they're doing, understand what the corollary then is. To the unbeliever watching us, they don't see our leadership, they don't see our spiritual priorities, they don't see our uh, conviction under the, uh, as unto the Lord. They just uh, There's an entire invisible realm that they have no frame of reference to even, even deal with. And yet we operate in that invisible realm, you see. Anyway, I, I enjoy this. I think the, uh, the unbeliever's perspective also fails to apprehend the Zoe life wisdom that shapes our Bios life wisdom. And in a lot of respects, they don't get it. <laughs> they don't get it because we may be operating in a way that's contrary to their Bios life wisdom. And they don't understand why we make the choices we make or why we do the things that we do. Why would we waste so much time going to church? I mean, goodness, there's a lot more productive things you can do on a Sunday morning. You know, that's a great time to wash the dog or, or wash the car or walk the dog or walk the car or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do on a Sunday morning and, and instead of wasting all that time going to church. In any event, let's look at these verses and we'll move on against some new ground this morning. Uh, Romans 8, 24, you know, we, we look at the, in, at the invisible all the time. Romans... Eight. Remember, do we hope for what we do not see, or do we hope for what we do see? And the fact that we don't see it yet, does that stop us? Not at all. It says, in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he already sees? 
And this is a definition of a Christian way of life. We, we, are, we are born again in this living hope. And this describes us. All right? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The fact that we don't see it yet doesn't stop us because why? Faith is the conviction of things uh, unseen. It's the assurance of the, of, and we'll see this here in Hebrews 11 before I misquote it, <laughs> the conviction of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 4.18 And, and hopefully none of this is a surprise to you. You've had teaching on this before. You know how to use your spiritual eyes to look at the spiritual realities and not just, if you're looking at the news just like an unbeliever looks at the news, how hopeless is that? But look with divine viewpoint. Look with the, with the lens of the Word of God and the spiritual discernment that He's equipped us with. So 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 18, I think a contrast, if I back up to verse 16, is probably sufficient for this. Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I mean, look at that. There's, there's wrinkles, there's aches, there's pains, there's all sorts of things that happen, and, and none of us are getting any younger. I mean, it's just we're all headed the same direction day by day, year by year. And uh, you know, every year that we, we uh, observe a birthday, we never subtract one off the number. We always add one to the number, and that's the direction it goes. But the inner man, renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so the outer and the inner, the visible and the invisible, the physical and the spiritual, these two uh, diametrically opposed realms, we operate in both of them. And if we keep our eyes where they ought to be in the spiritual dimension, then it really puts the physical stuff in a, in a proper context, in a proper perspective, where we don't sweat the small stuff anymore. And keeping our eyes in the spiritual realm shows us that it's all small stuff. Everything in the physical, temporal realm is all small stuff. There are no big deals in the physical, temporal realm. All of it is momentary. All of it is light. At least according to verse 17. And I think the parallel text of Scripture bear that out. Now, verse 18 while we look, while we continuously, presently are in the business of looking, we are not looking at the things which are seen. So quit looking at the visible stuff. But keep looking at the invisible stuff. So look not at the seen, but look at the not seen. See how that works? Look at the not seen. Look at the invisible. Keep your eyes fixed on the invisible. Because it's not invisible to you. It's only invisible to those without the eyes to see, without the ears to hear. All right? So we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what we need to be identified with. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I'm going to fix my eyes there. Uh, the uh, the electric bill or whatever, some earthly thing, um, some uh, cancer test or whatever. I mean, whatever it is. Something that's seen. Hey, look at that. Whatever it is, that's a, that's a seen thing. And that seen thing is, is temporal. I'm not taking that with me when I go. So there's the contrast. And so... If, in fact, our Zoe life wisdom shapes our temporal life wisdom, then we've got to start with this. We've got to keep our mind on the things above. We have to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then we can seek second some of these other things. Now that carries across into chapter 5, which uh, contrasts uh, this physical body as a tent and the one on the way as a permanent building. And uh, this one, we groan. That one won't be any groaning. Okay. And uh, verse 4 of chapter 5 says, Inasmuch, or indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. And, and the, the, I think the soul identifies that this body is a tent. The soul recognizes how transient uh, this existence truly is. And it knows that slipping out of this body could happen in a moment's notice. We're all mortal. The soul is immortal, but it knows that it's sitting in a mortal, in a mortal body of dust. 
But notice, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We will truly know life indeed when it's no longer when, when our immortal soul is no longer sheathed by a mortal uh, dust body. Okay. So he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So long as this dust body is our home, we are not physically in the presence of Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Positionally we are, spiritually we are, but physically we are not. This, this, this dust body couldn't survive the glory of the... You know, imagine such a thing. Imagine what, our, what this dust corruption body would, would, would experience if it was to be that close to the glory of Jesus Christ. Be absolutely incinerated, okay, in less than a nanosecond, okay? Notice, though, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The, the spiritual eyes are the walk of faith. Sight is simply the, the physical eyes and the cosmos way of looking at things. In so many ways, this ties in with, wonderfully with what we're looking at in Galatians because we're looking in Galatians at those stoicheia to cosmos. We're looking at the elemental principles of the world. And that's everything that the earthly eye looks at. So we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord. We need uh, that change of address where, whereby we, uh, we, we no longer reside in this, in this corruptible dust body. All right. Finally then, Hebrews 11. Of course, you know we have to look at Hebrews 11 with respect to our Zoe life priorities. The Zoe life wisdom shapes our Bios life wisdom. And if it's invisible, it's invisible. So what? <laughs> we can still see it. We apprehend it by faith. We keep our eyes fixed on the unseen. It's just the, uh, the unbeliever that doesn't understand what we're looking at. And even worse, carnal believers don't understand what we're looking at. And they should. They really should. But they've forgotten how to use those eyes. And the longer they spend in carnality, the worse it's going to get. So Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And you don't doubt it for a minute, okay? We talk about certainty. Well, if I, until I see it with my own eyes, then, well, wait a minute. Your eyes can deceive you. Why do you want to see it with your own eyes in terms of temporal life? But when you see it with your spiritual eyes, when you see it plain as day with your faith conviction, You'll never doubt that for, for a minute, okay? So it is uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And uh, this is what starts the chapter off. We have other references in verse 7 and verse 13 and verse 27. Again and again and again, this chapter is going to stress the unseen. And so um, by, uh, verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen... <laughs> right? God tells Noah, build an ark. Well, a carnally minded person or somebody with just operating on earthly vision might look around and say, well, I don't see any rain, right? I don't see, uh, you know, I don't see a flood on the way. In fact, what's rain? I don't think there was any rain prior to the flood, that there was a mist that would arise and water the earth and, and there was a canopy over overhead and the idea of uh, the floodgates of the deep being opened and the, and the rain pouring down from above. He didn't have a frame of reference, uh, of reference at all to understand any of that. But he had spiritual eyes to look at things not yet seen. And in, reference, in reverence, that is the fear of the Lord, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He's in the line of Christ. All right, unseen, yet seen. Verse 13, uh, there's a summary statement here. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Spiritual eyes able to look ahead like we ought to be doing day by day. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth. Can you see it yet? Well, with your earthly eyes, I'm sure you can't. <laughs> I can't, none of us can. With your earthly eyes, you don't see the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see this crummy old place. 
and you see unrighteousness thriving. Okay? So let's keep our spiritual eyes open, looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And here's our pattern, these Old Testament heroes of the faith. They died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know, am I going to be disappointed if uh, if I die a physical death at the age of, uh, you know, 110 and I never get to see the rapture? Yeah, I'm going to be disappointed, absolutely disappointed. And every day between now and then, I'm going to be looking for that rapture. I'm going to be looking, I'm going to be listening for the trumpet. See. All right. Goodness, bite my tongue. 110, is that what I said? I don't want to be here that long. All right, that's verse 13. See, notice, welcoming them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know? I think too many of us are too attached to this place. That's not our home. You know, why do we have such sentimental attachment to different things? You know, think about the last hotel room you checked out of. Do you miss it? <laughs> I mean, really? I, I mean, I can't even remember some of the different features it might have had. Or, I mean, it was kind of crummy. But, hey, it didn't really matter to me because it was cheap and I wasn't going to be there but three days and who cares? I was, I was kind of glad that Sharon went with me, though, because the whole neighborhood seemed kind of dodgy. But um, that's all right. It was cheap. I'm not going back. That's the attitude we should have. This whole world is like a cheap hotel in a dodgy neighborhood. I mean, man, who wants to hang around there? Let's, let's, let's go to someplace better. And so that's the attitude that they had, and it should be our attitude as well. Um, down to verse uh, 27. Here's uh, Moses, and you'll notice uh, verse 24, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What a moron. Why would he do that? Man, he could have had the easy life, could have had all the money, all the women, he could have had, he could have been the next Pharaoh. But he made a choice based on, not on Bios life wisdom, tell you that, the text tells us that right here. Concerning the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He had a Zoe life wisdom that shaped his Bios life wisdom. And hey, I'd rather uh, identify with the people of God. And if there's consequences for that, oh well, there's consequences for that. Let's see, there's consequences too for denying the people of God consequences for denying Christ. I don't want to be denied before the Father for the, the pedagogical rewards that Jesus Christ has to nominate us for. And so there it is, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What was Jesus looking to? He was looking to the reward. He despised the shame. He, took, he, he had the victory on the cross because he wasn't looking at the cross. All right. And so Moses, by faith, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Same language like we had in 2 Corinthians 4. We look at the things that are unseen. That's what Moses was doing. So this is ultimately the walk of faith, and it's, it spans all the dispensations. It spans the church age, the dispensation of Israel, dispensation of Gentiles, dispensation of angels. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. To have a spiritual priority rather than the temporal life existence. The application's there. All right? So there's our non-ant perspective. Let's get back to Proverbs 6 now and talk about prudence. Verse 8. Prudence prepares. Prudence prepares. Proverbs 6, 8. And of course, eternal prudence prepares for eternity. Proverbs 6, 8. Prudence prepares. Prudence is one of the translations uh, for some of the different wisdom vocabulary that we gave in the introduction to the book study. There's terms for wisdom, terms for discernment, terms for understanding, terms for prudence. And um, there's a bit of overlap between the different Hebrew expressions. We discussed that 
Uh, there's not always a one-to-one correspondence with some of the English terms. But in any event, we can understand prudence as a cautionary wisdom that is taking steps now to anticipate uh, issues that will come up down the road. All right, that's prudence. That's a, it's a, it's a wisdom application, or I say wisdom uh, um, realm with a foresight application, if that makes sense. All right, that's prudence. Not just wisdom now, but wisdom now preparing for something that will come up later. That's the idea of prudence. And so we should prepare. We talk about this as well in the realms of, of the New Testament, in realms of sin. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. That's only prudent, all right? If you feel like your sin nature has a particular proclivity or a, a weakness or a, a vulnerability in a, in a particular realm, well then, by all means, uh, demonstrate some prudence and head that off of the pass. You know, spend your time while you're in fellowship uh, taking the steps necessary to ward off certain things down the road when maybe you won't be in fellowship by that point of time. So uh, inoculate yourself ahead of time in, uh, in that regard. Anyway, that's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Prudence prepares, Proverbs 6.8, Proverbs 30.25, 1 Timothy 6.19, but eternal prudence prepares for eternity, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. I always find it interesting, people that talk about preparation, they talk about uh, savings and investments and, and uh, diversification of your portfolio and all kinds of things that they talk about, and uh, how far out do you plan? You know, and we want to be, we want to be wise about that. Um, we want to look to the anto sluggard and we want to store the application is here is that they do store, they prepare her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. There is a time to sow, there's a time to plant, there's a time to reap. Uh, and if you try to do it at the wrong time or you take too long, then it's too late and it's not going to grow. And, and it, it only makes sense. There are seasons that, that, that where you can't farm, you know. Uh, you've got to plant at the planting time. You've got to reap at the reaping time. You've got to gather into the, the uh, barns at the, the proper harvest time. And if you don't do all that ahead of time, well, it's too late by the time winter comes along. You know, the ants just aren't going to jump in the car and hit the sonic drive through or whatever. All right. So you've got to do it in the proper time. Makes sense. Now, how far out do you plan? Do you, um, what kind of reserves do you have? And, and there's arguments there. Well, you want to have 30 days of income or 90 days of income or six months of income or you want to build up reserves for, for whatever and prepare for this. And sometimes you can do it and sometimes you can't in different applications there. But I find it kind of funny with uh, different financial planners that, that we've spoken to in the past um, you know, they, they talk about, well, you got to plan for your kid's college. You got to plan for retirement. You got to plan for, I mean, there's all these things long-term. And, and so I asked them, I said, well, what do you consider long-term planning? You know, 20 years, is that long enough? 40 years, is that long enough? 60 years, is that long enough? You know, how about 10,000 years from now, bright shining as the sun? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. You know, there's, there's eternal planning that we ought to be focused on. And then there's daily living where we enjoy His faithfulness. And then uh, in between there, we've got, uh, I think, a, a range <laughs> within the discretionary will of God in order to consider other type of things. All right. So Proverbs 6, 8, you know, is it a seasonal thing? Summer and harvest? You know, are we are we thinking seasonally? Are we thinking because I mean that's the one thing it just it doesn't stop. It's going to happen, right? Winter is coming. Okay, to quote a series of books, winter is coming. The, the seasons are on the way, and you can't stop them. Um, and I said earlier, we're not getting any younger. Are we anticipating? Uh, you know, Sharon and I talk about you know we bought this house and it's got those stairs, and you know. <laughs> we'll probably reach an age that we're not going to like those stairs very much. So probably a good thing we put that chairlift in. Let's look at Proverbs 30 and verse 25. You know, because there are certain non-negotiable things like gravity. It is what it is. 
age. It is what it is. The seasons, the weather, food. Are you fond of eating? Well, that requires money. It requires food. You've got you to pay for it somehow. All right, Proverbs 30, 25. So have some wisdom about this. This is really the parallel text in Proverbs 30 to Proverbs chapter 6. Four things are small in the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. We have ants, we have rock badgers, we have locusts, and we have lizards. Although we're kind of guessing on the rock badgers and we're not exactly sure, so we might just call them Shephanim. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. They have the wisdom to recognize that uh, you've got to prepare ahead of time for stuff. It just can't be instantaneous gratification. That delayed gratification, there is a wisdom component to delayed gratification. And that uh, not all income is disposable income, that you ought to put some of it aside and invest it and different things there. Uh, the Shephanim are not a mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. Have some uh, discernment about where you live and why you live there. Locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. Again, there's a secular life wisdom that applies with, in a prudence kind of a way. The lizard, you may grasp with the hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Anyway, applications there. How about 1 Timothy 6.19? Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. So what is a safe investment? You know, I think there are, there are safer investments. There are less risky investments. But there are no risk-free investments, not on this earth. Um, different things there. Instruct those, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. You know, if you think you earned it or deserved it, if you think that, well, you know, no, don't be conceited. Don't be full of yourself because you're observing a, a present wealth. And do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches because it can be gone tomorrow. Absolutely gone tomorrow. I, I think we've had so much quantitative easing in our economy that it's, it's all phony. I think it's all devalued. I don't think it has any basis in reality. But what do I know? All right. Um, the uncertainty of riches. But fix your uh, hope on God, as it says, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So I'm not boasting in the wealth. I'm boasting in the God who supplies all the wealth. And uh, beyond the temporal stuff, the eternal wealth that's being stored up for all eternity. Uh, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Don't overlook that. Whatever He's blessed you with, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Hey, thank you, Father. Don't grumble over what He didn't give you. Enjoy what He did give you. And don't, don't grumble that it's too little or too small. Say, man, I deserve none of that anyway. Just rejoice in what He gave you. He gave it to you to enjoy it. Storing up, or instruct them to do, to do good, to be rich in good works. All right, you got some earthly riches. What about the good works riches? You got any of that? To be generous and ready to share. This goes along with the attitude, the grace capacity to receive and the grace capacity to give. And which one's more blessed? The receiving or the giving? It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so if the capacity is there and He allows you the enjoyment in doing that, then there it is. Generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Notice, this is how you hoard <laughs> you hoard spiritually by not hoarding um, physically, okay? Because the generosity is what stores up for themselves. That's, that's just, that flies in the face of what earthly wisdom says. Ooh, I've got to store it. Ooh, I've got to store it. If I give away, I have less. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Life indeed. What do we start life with? You know, talking to my kids. What are you going to start life with? And when you're leaving home and you establish your own household, what are you starting life with? You know, are you graduating from 
somewhere A and M now with sixty grand of, of debt hanging over your head just the day you graduate? What are you doing? I wonder anymore. But forget this life. When you step through the veil from mortality into immortality, what's the foundation you've laid that's gonna, that that you have to lay hold of when you get there? You know, too many Christians are going to get to heaven with nothing laid up. So they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And that's, that's where the real life starts. That's, that's, that's where eternity begins after we depart mortality. All right. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Nothing wrong with seeking temporal life things as long as we seek them second. Matthew 6. Look at it, see with your own eyes, put your finger on it. Nineteen through twenty-one. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's the priority? What's the priority? Is it earthly or is it heavenly? Which do we do first? See? Seek ye first. Now I love this. Down to verse 33. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And that doesn't say seek only, it says seek first. I think too many people read seek first and they read it as if it's seek only. And don't ever, ever think about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or where you're going to live. Okay? You can seek that stuff, but make sure you seek it secondly. If your spiritual uh, priorities are engaged, if you have your Zoe life wisdom on track, then you can start to focus on the Bios life wisdom because the the one is going to shape the other. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All right, and there it is. So prudence prepares, eternal prudence prepares for eternity. Now we get to verses 9 through 11. Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? If you insist on being a slug, how long are you going to be a slug? You know, it's like asking a glutton, how much are you going to eat? Or ask a drunkard, how much are you going to drink? Ask a sluggard, how long are you going to be a sluggard? Okay, it's just it's it's consuming them. It's who they are. It's shaping their uh, their lifestyle. All right, and so there's no real good answer to this. <laughs> the answer is just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just one more snooze button. You said that the last four times. Okay, it's amusing to me. Some of these smartphone apps now you can set. How many snoozes and how many minutes per snooze? I, I just don't get that. And, 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 and I never use it. Never. No. No, I mean, it's just, you know, maybe it's my military background. I don't know. Maybe it's just my stubborn carnality. But I, I just, I go to bed and I know what time I got to be up in the morning. And so that's it. Drop dead, deadline, don't worry about it. And then when the alarm goes off, the alarm goes off and I'm out of bed and got to. There's no options, right? Anyway, that's not Bible, that's not doctrine, that's my opinion, and you can ignore it as all you wish. Poverty and need. Poverty and need are the vagabonds and ruffians of the undisciplined life. Poverty and need are the vagabonds and ruffians of the undisciplined life. Verses 9 through 11. Poverty and need. You know, do we have needs? We do. But my God shall supply all your need. All right. And poverty? Are we are any are any of us in poverty? Not really. I mean we might, but that's only in the Bios life. Christ, though he was rich for your sake, became poor. You know, where we make many rich, he makes many rich. You know, poverty is uh, poverty is such a relative scale anyway. It, it, you know, 
these, these morons on TV talking about the poverty and whatever, and they don't understand that poverty in this country is wealth anywhere else on planet Earth. It is just, you want to talk about poverty. Man. Man, don't get me going on that. <laughs> okay. All these people below the poverty line, and they got three TVs and two cars, and, and they got all these other things, and it's just, it boggles the mind. Now, I'll never forget taking Bob to the Philippines with me, and we went to this remote village and just dirt floors and the huts, and and um, this this one family had a had a I think she was about eleven year old girl, ten or eleven year old girl, blind, a blind girl, and uh, this was she had never met an American before, and she was so excited to, to meet a real live, actual, honest to goodness American. Wow, there's an American in our village, and and and. Do you think that they would come to our home and then do you think that, that they would meet us? And so we did. We went in and, and, and stood in this dirt floor hut with this, this little girl. And um, yeah, she wanted to meet an American and, and got, got to meet Bob and talk to Bob and Bob got to talk to her and, and it made a, a, a huge impression, let me tell you, on a teenage kid <laughs> how, uh, how life is in many places. All right. Well, Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 9, uh, 9 through 11, rather, and then the parallel in Proverbs 24, verses 33 through 34. Uh, not just a conceptual parallel, but a word for word parallel in the uh, song that is composed here. The vagabonds and ruffians. Notice, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? Is that actually a rhetorical question that David is asking Solomon or Solomon is asking his reader? Is this a rhetorical question that God is asking for the sluggards of the world to to unite and to ask? Um, Or is this, um, (laughs) this is actually the opening uh, chorus, the opening line of a song? All right. And then here's the answer to the song. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Okay, so you can imagine children on a playground, and one opens with this line, the other opens with that line, and then ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> okay, it's just uh, this is the this is the ancient world's equivalent of ring around the rosy. Okay, your poverty, and here's the outcome now: your poverty will come in like a vagabond. I love that. And your need like an armed man. And the Holman's got a little different rendering on that. New King James had a little bit different rendering on these, on these terms. Okay, but there's the vagabond and there's the armed man. I love that. I love that because this is, you know, we have terms in the Scriptures that are not permitted anymore in our politically correct language in uh, in different things we, we don't have vagrants anymore or or uh, vagabonds okay that's the considered demeaning it's considered uh it doesn't it doesn't uh, promote the the self-esteem of of the vagrants okay and we, we you know it's bad enough we have vagrants we don't want vagrants with low self-esteem okay really what 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 is the what is the culture doing with these people all right uh proverbs 24 Verses 33 and 34. Notice, same words. It doesn't have the startup question of how long will you lie down there, but it, it has the same words in 33 and 34. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Look, if you're asleep at the switch, what do you expect to happen? Okay, you snooze, you lose, right? This is the ancient world's version of if you fall asleep, you miss out. Or uh, better referred to as if you snooze, you lose, okay? Because there are certain opportunities. We don't roll the clock back. The clock is not stopping. It's, it's moving forward in this regard. Now, um, poverty. Poverty is not evil in itself, but the manner in which it arrives is the real problem. Poverty is not evil in itself. It can be. 
It can be a great evil. It's an evil in terms of the divine discipline that's applied to the sluggard. Poverty is not evil in itself, but the manner in which it arrives is the real problem. And I would relate this to Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, I've learned how to get along in humble means. I've learned to get along in prosperity. And there will likely be seasons of both from time to time in, uh, in our personal life. Philippians 4. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last, okay, finally, you have revived your concern for me. Okay, it's been a while since Philippi was able to send some gifts. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So the hard attitude was there, but the funds weren't there. Okay, and Paul says, I get that, I understand that. And Paul wasn't complaining. He's just stating the reality of it's been a while. And now that that been a while is done, hey, wow, happy to see that uh, happy to see that the financial support is coming again because the prayer support never stopped. Okay? You were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. This is what we're praying for as a, as a church. My deacons right now are joining me in this desire. We want, we want, we're looking at the annual budget and we want, uh, and maybe next year will be the year, but we want a, a day is coming that we're going to take 40000 off the top and that goes to missions, no questions asked. All right? Well, 2014 hasn't been the year. 2015 hasn't been the year, but the day is coming. All right, so you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. He says, I'm not complaining. And speaking from want, I think, is indicative as well. That if we are, if we are overwhelmed by the need, by the poverty, that itself becomes the origin or the source of why certain words are then spoken, right? Speaking from anger, speaking from lust, speaking from greed, speaking from uh, poverty or want, okay? If you're allowing circumstances to motivate how you say things or why you say things, that's a problem. <laughs> That's not a divine viewpoint. Well, our, our circumstances, well, we should speak the truth and love in any circumstance. So he says, I'm not speaking from what? For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And this is mastery of the circumstances and details of life. This is what we all should be headed for in our Christian growth. And you don't have to be saved 90 years to get there. I think a, a young believer, if he learns the principles in his first weeks and months of being saved can develop this attitude very quickly because it's a mindset that can be instilled at the youngest of Christian ages and ought to be instilled. In fact, if we can ground our children in this attitude, we do them a huge favor for down the road. Learn to be content in whatever circumstances. Say, hey, I don't need the latest Reeboks. Do they still make those? I don't need the latest Air Jordans every school year. Okay, I got the same shoes I had last school year, same shoes the year before. I guess, well, feet need to grow. But the principle is you don't need the latest and greatest and you don't have to have the, you got the same lunchbox you had in the last four years. Well, all right. Learn to be content. Circumstances, if they change, we'll change what we're doing. But until they change, we'll, we'll stay with what we're doing. We're content because God is faithful. And this is true in financial wealth. This is true in physical health. We might have a wealth versus poverty spectrum. We might have a health versus sickness spectrum and somewhere in between. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. Both are assignments. Both are tests. Both will evaluate whether we're keeping our eyes on the Lord or not. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. There's a secret to eating well. <laughs> and there's a secret to tightening your belt. Skipping some meals and waiting for the next one and, and uh, so forth. I've learned the secret of having abundance and the secret of suffering need. And you say, well, they aren't very secret. <laughs> what kind of a no-brainer is it? If you, if you don't have any money, well, then you don't have any money. 
No, there's secrets there. There's this keeping your eyes on the Lord and remaining faithful and walking by faith and trusting Him. Likewise on, well, what happens if I have too much money? Yeah, sign me up for that test. That's a problem I want to face. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay. Both require divine viewpoint perspective to keep your eyes on the Lord, to identify the reason why He provided the abundance. You should enjoy it, but you should also be uh, observant of the possibilities that He gave that abundance for a purpose, and that purpose may present itself uh, fairly soon. And so there's the, uh, there's the realm there. So poverty is not evil. Paul said, I've learned the secret of, of, of uh, poverty. He learned the, the uh, circumstances, how to get along in humble means. Not evil to be poor. If he's assigned that to you, he's assigned that to you. The verb is rush, not rush. Rush. I wonder if this is how Rush Limbaugh got his name. Rush. Strong's Concordance number is 7326, has 24 Old Testament uses. Uh, I don't know that we actually have to go through and read them all. I think we know what it means to be poor. Um, however, I find, you know, there's a, there's a, poverty is the normal human experience. Do we get that? <laughs> human history for 6,000 years, 8,000 years, human history is by and large a record of poverty with little glimpses of wealth spread here and there. And we lose sight of that because 20th century America and 21st century America is a prolonged wealthy culture that's unlike anything this world has ever seen. So most of human history is centered on poverty. Most of human history is centered on the endeavors to produce food and to survive another season. And so it's not surprising that we have a lot of scriptures that address this. 1 Samuel 18, 23, I think is a good example. Uh, 2 Samuel 12, I love, because that's, uh, that's the poor man with the one little ewe lamb. And David came along and slaughtered that one little ewe lamb to, you know, that's the, that's the parable there that Nathan gives when he convicts David of his, of his adultery. But 1 Samuel 18, verse 23, Saul's servants uh, spoke these words about becoming the king's son-in-law. Let's see, this is when he gets to marry Michael or Michal. I prefer to pronounce it Michal because that doesn't seem like a boy's name. Michael to me seems like a boy's name. But anyway, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David and uh, was agreeable in Saul's sight and said, all right, you may be, a, for the second time, you may be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. I mean, remember, <laughs> uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah was tiny. You know, Bethlehem Ephrathah was too little to be considered among the clans of Judah. It, uh, it didn't even, it wasn't even impressive enough to be, uh, to rise to clan status within the tribe. And so it's not a place of much wealth. And, and on top of that, David is the eighth son of Jesse. <laughs> What do you think he's going to inherit? Okay. And uh, yeah, the firstborn gets a double portion, but you know, then you're dividing it nine ways among these eight boys. Um, what might he expect? Anyway, so there's the, uh, the poverty there. Second Samuel chapter 12, we mentioned that, uh, verses 1, 3, and 4. Psalm 34, 10. Let's turn there, Psalm 34.10. You know, is poverty evil? See, I think when we talk about the, uh, the stoikeia to cosmu, the elemental things of the world, there is a mindset, there is an attitude that says, hey, if you're poor, something's wrong. <laughs> if you're poor, what's wrong with you? If you're poor... Um, 
you're not supposed to be. God doesn't want you to be poor. Or if you're poor, you, you deserve better than that. Okay? It's a stoicheia, one of the elemental things of the, of the cosmos. We're studying this right now in Galatians chapter 4. The elemental things of the cosmos. These attitudes. All right. Psalm 34 and verse uh, 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Amen. What a promise. You know? Um, they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Read that. Understand what it's saying. Read it with your spiritual eyes. Relate, relate it to the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Because if you're seeking the Lord, does anything else matter in the physical realm? Maybe you will have a lack in the physical realm. But this says you will not be in want of any good thing. Your eyes are fixed on the Lord. You have the perspective. You'll learn the secret, like Paul said, of, of uh, getting along with humble means, getting along in prosperity. You learn the contentment in every and all circumstances, and you'll testify, man, I could, I could list all the things I don't have, <laughs> but why bother? Because I have the Lord. I'm, I don't want any good thing. I'm in need of nothing. I have all things. All things belong to me. I belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. That's what you're talking about? Yeah. No, I agree with that. I am a rich man. Okay? That's the, that's the follow-up song to If I Were a Rich Man. Okay? The follow-up song is I am a rich man. I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, think about that. The young lions. How young are they? All right, uh, 82.3. Psalm 82.3. More uses of the uh, principle here to be poor. God actually is very concerned for the poor. And he expects that his people will reflect his heart attitude. So God takes his stand in his own congregation he judges in the midst of the rulers. This is Yahweh Elohim speaking in the divine council. These are angelic beings that he's rebuking. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. All right, and as far as we understand the angelic realm and, and their role in uh, humanity, watching over and judging societies and cultures, the things that they reward and the things that they don't reward, um, this is a session where he is chewing them out. Okay? Um, and there's a lot of work to be done on that. That's, that's the divine counsel things. And are we... Is that still in operation today? Is that still over humanity today? Did this apply to the circumstances before uh, Adamic humanity? Was this on the angelic earth as opposed to our earth? I think some authors take that the wrong way. (laughs) All right. Not to name names or anything, but the book came out last week. Dan and I have been reading it. Uh, Proverbs 10.4. Oh, I'm out of time. All right, well, we'll pick up on this because there's a lot more to deal with. We know what it means to be poor. And uh, notice how many of those Proverbs passages there are. Starting in chapter 10, going to chapter 29, the bulk of those 24 Old Testament uses come in the Proverbs about being poor. Do you think wisdom has something to do with being poor? Failure to apply God's wisdom? Then we have the uh, noun for poverty, which is resh. Not rush, but resh. Rush is the verb, resh is the noun. Seven uses there, they're all in Proverbs. Okay? dealing with poverty. Well, Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your blessings. And I pray that we would understand this text, Father. I pray that we would understand the biblical mandates to apply spiritual wisdom, to apply secular wisdom, to identify with your uh, design. And Father, your design for hard work, your design to, uh, to, to judge and discipline laziness. And Father, I pray that we would Uh, Make the appropriate applications, Father. We don't assume that all sickness is because of sin. 
And we don't assume that all uh, poverty is because of laziness. But Father, at the same time, we identify that much of it is. And if, uh, if the sickness is a sin issue, then we've got to deal with the sin issue first. If the uh, poverty is a laziness issue, we've got to deal with the laziness first. And Father, I pray that we would uh, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then make the secular wisdom applications appropriately. And Father, uh, I pray that we might be discerning in particular because our culture is getting so uh, off track. It uh, originally had a Judeo-Christian basis, but anymore, Father, it is all now saturated with the, the secular humanism that that uh, never blames self for anything that, that goes wrong. And uh, Father, I pray that we might stand forth in your truth. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.